Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. My name's Sharon. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, yeah, it's catfish. You gotta eat catfish with your fingers. It's like so good. You guys have fun. I think I'm gonna have a good time with y'all. Um, yeah, you know, I've had a lot of spiritual experiences in my in my life, and the only way I can really describe them is to tell a story about them. And that's what we do up here. We tell our stories. And the identification, one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic is what it's all about. And I'm so I feel like this is a room full of alcoholics. And <laughs> I'm loving it. I think I'm either I'm gonna have some fun, have some laughs and sitting there next to uh, old Tim there, I'm gonna get some calluses too, I think. So that's <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's, he's, he says some things. I don't know if he's kidding or not, but, you know, I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I was, I was, I, um, and thank you for moving the meeting. It was, you know, I, I was up at four and got stuck in Denver, and then they got me here. I said, I got to get there, so, um, so just God showed up and brought an airplane, and here I am, so. You know, uh, you were talking about um, Sandy Beach and Ed Mutum, and those are two um, powerful friends in my life. And um, you know, who was it? Jay? Who read the the uh, the promises? Jay Bell, Joe Bell, Joe Bell, Jay Bell, Joe Bell. Sandy used to talk about it like it's a magic show. You know, words like disappear and suddenly and. And um, every time I, he- I hear them, I, I, it's, it's still like it's like a magic show. How do these ha- things happen for us? How do we have intuitive thought? How do we have forgiveness? How do we have, you know, I, I mean, I drank away my rights as a human being. And you know, when I came to you, you, you saw something worth saving. And I, I appreciate that very, very much. Um, and Ed Mutum was an Iowa boy. I'm an Iowa girl. And um, he took my parents to see the Globe Trotters when he came to Iowa because he was he was a tall guy so he was working for them and he was the guy in Clancy's backyard that he lived in the garage because he had nowhere to live for a while he couldn't keep a job maybe he was too tall who knows but um, <laughs> he had some things to learn so he wrote an inventory when he was back there he had to get this inventory written and he was on a deadline now because um, you're staying in your sponsor's back garage, and so there's a deadline or you're out, right? Um, little pressure always helps with us. So he was he wrote this inventory, and, and Clancy had goats at one time, and they had Charlotte had pigeons, and I don't then he got that pony at Christmas because he used to he whined and whined that he never got a pony when he was a kid, and that's why he drank, and we had this Christmas extravaganza. Every year in West Covina, because when Clancy, when Clancy, he answered the phone at the, you know, he was just having coffee because he had nowhere to go. He was at the clubhouse, and they needed a, a speaker for Christmas Eve because somebody canceled. He said, I'll do it, right? So he had like two years of sobriety, and he went out there and spoke, and he was so funny and irreverent. They asked him back every year and every year and every year. So he always complained about he never got a pony. So one Christmas, I must have been about, I don't know, it must have been about 19... 80. And in the middle of his talk, and it's a crowded room, his oldest baby stood up and said, I'm sick of this about the pony. I'm sick of hearing that you never got your pony, and that's why you felt different. And he walked out, and Clancy's going, oh, my God, what happened? 
and he brought, he starts leading this pony. <laughs> Literally, up the aisle, it has a little red and green blanket that says Clancy's Pony on it. <laughs> it's like something you guys would do. I just have a feeling. And then, you know, everybody died and fell out. And then at the end, and he was like, Harvey, okay, that was really funny. And Where's that pony going? He said, to your house. <laughs> so now he has a pony in the house. So anyway, I mean, in the garage, but named Poquita. And so anyway, Ed was back there with all the animals, right, writing his inventory. <laughs> and Clancy said, is your inventory done? I said, yeah, okay, tomorrow night, you know, I'll bring the flashlight, and, you know, we're going to take a drive. And and so Ed goes back to get his inventory the next day, and the goat had eaten his inventory. <laughs> True story. Now listen, that's not all. You know, in alcoholic fashion, the goat died. <laughs> he couldn't digest something, that's for sure. So Ed... <laughs> Ed Needham was um, always very nice to me because he, you know, he was an Iowa boy and I was an Iowa girl, and boy, I felt like you know there was just no home for me anywhere. And and uh, yeah, and my father had an accident on his land and he was killed instantly. And um, I flew home and I'm sitting there and this guy pulls up after he had just done a wedding somewhere and he heard what happened and there's Ed at my door in Iowa because that's what we do for each other. We go any links, just like with Brian. I mean, I was, we're driving, I'm sitting in the car, we're talking and having a good time, and oh, it's my sister, and he takes the phone, and it's I can tell from his voice that something happened that was big, and um, he kept his dignity, he kept his cool, he um, he's there to do what he needs to do, and he can't wait to come back and get filled up with us. So I know we'll fill him up. And um, he's, you know, he told me about, he was had dinner with his mother every Monday, he cooked her dinner, and he told me a lot about her, and, and we watched the sunset, and it was a beautiful sunset for his mother, and listened to stories of his mom, and he brought me here, made sure I was set up, and, you know, and then he's going to be responsible, because that's what we do. That's what we do. I'm a responsible human being today. The IRS isn't looking for me. I don't have people from the chosen few looking for me. I don't have... I don't have anybody looking for me. I can. I don't have to walk down the street and look over my shoulder. I don't have to worry if I see somebody that I better leave. Um, I'm a free woman today because of Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps and the traditions and people that cared enough about me to raise me up here. As you did, you raised me up. And I, I didn't like being from Iowa, though. I must tell you, it was. Um, I mean, it would have been cool to be here. Daniel Boone, you know, it's like. <laughs> I like those guys, like David Crockett. They didn't have a chance, you know, the guys that didn't have a chance. I really liked those guys growing up. Gandhi, you know, he was suicide. He was he was killed, you know. He, somebody killed him, and I just I loved him too. And you can't like really fast in Iowa when you're, um, you know, you're with a family that, you know, eat your pork, you know. It's like. So I looked for the mothership, and they didn't come back and get me. And um, I realized at six I'm in Iowa. And I realized at six that that human beings aren't nice to other human beings. And I and and that was all just from somebody's National Geographic's in their basement. I was looking at. And I was like, 
I couldn't believe what I had seen in those photos. And I grew up in a house of love. Uh, my dad, after every meal with my mother, gave her a kiss on the cheek and told her what a good cook she was. And, and I would watch my mother be doing dishes, and sometimes I'd sneak and watch my dad would walk and kiss her on the, the neck as he walked by. And there was a lot of love, and I have three siblings, and nobody's alcoholic. And then there's me. So it was very evident early on that I was overly emotional, that I um, <laughs> that I needed to stay busy. Um, so I was in a lot of activities growing up, and I had the voices in my head that talked to me. You know, I call her the evil twin now, but I got it down to just two. You know, so. <laughs> But, um, yeah, and sometimes they change clothes in the middle of the night. You think, okay, these are my good character. This is my character defects. This is character. This is defects. And then they switch it up. And, you know, I just had a very loud head. And at 12 going on 13, sitting on a 1957 Chevy out in the country roads with the woodsy going on with the football players and the cheerleaders. And I'm a, like, skinny little flat-chested trainer. I'm wearing my trainer bra, you know, so it's like nothing. But um, train, come on, you know. Let's <laughs> work out, something. A little Canadian club and a little Schlitz beer chaser, that trainer bra woke up. And that, that I just pushed that cheerleader off the hood of the car and Miss 38D in a mohair sweater, but I didn't care. Alcohol was the... It was what I was seeking, which was a closeness to a power. And it didn't do that for everybody I drank with. I just thought, oh, wow, this, everybody's getting this. No, uh, everybody didn't get that. But it was what I was seeking. I was always a seeker. And I love Alcoholics Anonymous because we continue to seek. Feet firmly planted, we can continu- continue to seek. I love that Bill was a seeker. And I love that Bob was the anchor. I think about it, if we would have had two Bills, it would have been franchised. If we would have had two Bobs, it wouldn't have left Akron. So, it, you know, I just think it's a divinely inspired program, and we are the lucky ones to be here because they say every alcoholic has a sobriety date. It's either in the rooms or it's on your tombstone. And it's like, okay. So I drank, and I and I have you know I have a resume, and everybody in my family was you know I had a men's older sister. She saved me from a fire when I was, I think I was six. Another big six something happened at six. So how do you fight with a hero child? How do you fight? You know, you shouldn't have saved me. You know, and all the accolades. And then she got a letter from the governor, and we took these photos for the paper because she saved all of our lives. And and I'm like sneering at her. You know, <laughs> right in the front page of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. <laughs> you know, sister saves their her siblings from fire. You know, she's got these awards, and we're all sitting around the piano. Everybody's looking nice. And I'm going <laughs> because it took that sister 40 years. I'm 44 years sober. It took that sister 40 years to look me in the eyes and mean it. 40 years. There was something between her and me that I couldn't break. I couldn't get close to. So one of our um, <laughs> one of our watchwords is perseverance. And boy, oh boy, it can just never give up. Never give up. You just I didn't know that that would ever happen. 
and I approached her many, many times. But that was my older sister, and sister, the younger sister with the ponytail, always sitting on my dad's lap in every photo, and she had the ponytail and the horse, and you know, wanted to be a nurse and moved to Alaska, and she did that. And then my brother's got a doctorate, so then there's me, the alcoholic. <laughs> so, but I got to go to the White House when I was 16, and I got to go to the, um, the United Nations when I was 16. I was chosen as the female from the state of Iowa, they had a hundred students that were the future. <laughs> What's your future? Um, the only reason I entered the contest was because my sister did, and I wanted I wanted to win, and I did. I beat her. She didn't t- talk to me for like two years, I think it was. But so that's kind of my upbringing. Was it was you know it made me feel different because I just didn't react to life the same way they reacted to life. They responded. I reacted. And um, so, the, you know, the White House and all that went, took, you know, didn't take very long. It was the 60s. I went off to college. It wasn't just say no. It was just say thanks. Um, <laughs> a lot going on. And um, I started, to, my fiancé, I caught him under a streetlight with the sorority girl who was his tutor, <laughs> thanking her uh, profusely on the lips, <laughs> and uh, broke my heart. And my mother said, aren't you going to cry? And I said, no. And that was the first time I remember stuffing such a big, huge feeling and drinking at it. It relieved the pain. It, I don't know where it went, way down deep in my right foot or something, but I didn't have to deal with it until I got sober. And I started to not need people. I started, I I had friends, but I didn't, I had this secret life because I really drank. I would hitchhike all the way to Chicago because I could go to Rush Street. I would hitchhike up to to, um, Lake Okoboji because we could go across the border and drink because I think we had a fake ID and we were 15. But my mother thought I was staying at my girlfriend's house. You know, my mother had no idea what was happening. My mother didn't sleep at nights for years with not knowing where her daughter was. And the thing that Alcoholics Anonymous first gave my family was that my mother could sleep at night. And I thank you for that. Um, and as Norm Alpe would say, just because of that, I'm overpaid. Yeah, Norm used to talk about, God gives the big loads to the big horses and the little loads to the guys named Norm. And... Uh, <laughs> We got a little load here because we got every tool we need to go through life and everything that is present that we're accountable for, like what Brian's going through now. And other people, I'm sure there's some people sitting in the room that are going through some things. Um, you, see, you know, life doesn't stop because we're sober. <clears throat> but boy, I love drinking. I love the bars. I love, oh, God, just having the right three songs on the jukebox. The right person sitting next to me is usually somebody who's buying. (laughs) And I didn't care if you wanted to be the astronaut tonight or the surgeon or always a lawyer. There was always a lawyer at the bar. Um, But I just love the atmosphere because it was make-believe. I loved it. And I had fake IDs, and I went to art school, and... My dad would come down to try to talk to me because I looked funny. I came home. I was dressing different. I looked different. And he didn't know what was going on with me. And he said, what, what's wrong with you? You look different. Your life, are you going to college? Are you even painting? I mean, my parents had oil paintings hanging in their living room that I had made. And I wasn't. I was drinking at Joe's place. I was, 
um, doing anything that there was to be anti-establishment just because it was exciting and fun. And my dad said, um, you know, I'm going to, you know, the priest is, my dad brought the priest down because I tried to (laughs) kill myself. I cut myself until it hurt. And then, um, but they wrote a letter to my dad to tell my dad and my dad brought the priest down and father and I drank whiskey sour after whiskey sour after whiskey sour at dinner until we were smashed. And um, he went down to the student union with me and we sat in on a (laughs) sit-in. And my dad, it was a room about four times this big. It was a huge university. He was standing away. I could see him looking in like, oh my God, she's corrupted the family priest now. (laughs) So they didn't know what was wrong with me. I would say, just stand back and leave me alone. I'm not hurting anyone but myself. And that's selfish, self-centered, a big lie. Stand back and watch me die, is what you were saying. And my dad would try to help me, and I wouldn't let him. And my dad would say, what's wrong with you? And sometimes I would tell him in detail what's wrong with me. And then he couldn't talk to me, and because I would turn and walk away, and you don't understand, and, you know, whatever. I was angry, and and I didn't, I had not a lot of feeling for doing the right thing anymore. Something happened inside of me, and I didn't care. I started to not care. Um, I ended up in New York City, worked for an ad agency. I have a lot of Chapter 3. And we had a two-hour martini lunch every day. Um, it was great. I could drink until 4 in the morning when they closed the bars. And then I would have a little mother's helper to get me back to work. And then and then we would have our two-hour martini lunch. I don't remember people I went to high school with, but Harriet Krasnowitz was my boss. <laughs> I still remember her. She was fabulous at Foot Cone and Belding. And we had that two-hour martini lunch every day. And if we didn't feel good, we'd close our doors. And you know, then I went back to art school, and I couldn't paint. And that was the first time I remember having something gone from me that was me. And um, I don't know, maybe if the bartender would have said, it's time for you to slide across the bar, your art talent. you got to give it up if you're going to go down the path of alcoholism. I would have said, who cares? Pictures, pictures, pictures. And I would have just ordered a drink and gone on. And it didn't last very long. And uh, my dad and I had another blowout, uh, you know, yelling. And then everybody looked at each other. And we just stopped yelling, walked away, and never talked about it again. And my dad and I didn't lock eyes for years, years, years. I didn't ride in the same car with him. I didn't walk down the hallway if he was there. I didn't sit at the breakfast table if he was there. And I love my dad. I love my dad. He was, he was great. He built a business. He was an amazing man. And he was handsome and fun and taught me how to polka. He was Czech. Um, they had fun parties, and it was great. And um, But now Dad and I can't even sit at the same table or eat at the same time. And my mother said, well, you can stay here as long as you stay out of your dad's way because you break his heart. All right. So I stayed for a little while, and I ended up going to Colorado because I wanted to be a cowgirl. Never got on a horse. Um, Somewhere, it seems like to me, at the Mountain Man Bar near Aspen, Colorado, I had a slide across the bar, my dignity. It's King Alcohol asked for my dignity. I need to pay. Alcohol or dignity? Who cares about dignity, right? Whatever that is. I want my alcohol. 
And um, I met Bob Dylan. I think it was Bob Dylan. I'm not really sure. Um, <laughs> looked like him, sang like him. Anyway, we ended up in um, Laguna Beach, California. I came to California for the first time. He went his way. I went mine. Um, I landed at my very first commune, and they didn't drink like me. They just smoked that stuff and drooled. It was just like, and they panhandled, and so they would put me out on this really hot corner in Westwood where the Krishnas were dancing. I'd have a lot of fun, and then they'd want a commitment. If you wanted a commitment, eternity or forever from me, I was gone. I had a book in my backpack called Be Here Now by Baba Ram Das, and that's what I was. I thought I was present because I did what I wanted, when I wanted, and how I wanted. So that, to me, was being here now. I had no idea what it meant to be present. So I had made no money because I just would say things like, hey, you don't want to give me any money, do you? And they go, no. You know, so they would pick me up, and I'd have 50 cents because I had, had some wine with some of the guys, you know, had some fun. And they go, what's wrong with you? You're going to have to go in the kitchen. So they stuck me in the kitchen because I was a terrible panhandler because it was stupid. And so, yeah, then they uh, took me on a picnic and told me to bring my things. <laughs> and they left me at Mount Baldy where we had our picnic. And so they got rid of me because I'm drinking their bong wine. You know, I'm drinking whatever I can drink. And they got mad at me about that. And they just, they were boring. And um, I ended up back in Colorado, and that was bad, and I ended up back at home, and I met somebody in a bar I had gone to school with, and he said, let me take care of you, and I thought, great, I'm tired. I have a gallbladder not working, I have pancreatitis, I'm 20, go ahead, take care of me. I don't care, I need a rest. But I ended up in an organic community in northern Wisconsin, where... We had a wood stove to eat and make tea and even get warm. And then they, I said, please get an oil stove. We finally got an oil stove because everything would freeze and stick. I'd wake up, everything was frozen. It was a non-insulated schoolhouse. We had 50 head of organic sheep. We had 85 acres of organic land. And then the people next to us had, you know, they had their pigs. And the people next to them had something else, their chickens and it was just this big community, and they'd get together and have hootin' nannies. <laughs> and they would drink this little organic wine that we had made, little tiny glasses. I couldn't handle it. So I would go get some cheap wine and come back, and then I would, you know, tell them what I thought about him, and they'd just say, shh, quiet, there's a guy playing guitar up there. Yeah, he's from Minnesota. He's Leo Kotke or something. And I didn't care, you know. I, I just, like, I told them, they said, shh, go sit there and play your spoons. And they taught me how to play the spoons. So I'd sit in the car and drop play the spoons. So that was my life, and it was over, really, before it even started. But... We did have some Maui Waui seed, and we did have 12 loads of sheep dung, and we did have a virgin, we rototilled some virgin soil back in the up and down. We were committed. You know, black flies biting your back one seed at a time, 12 feet tall. That's all I can say. They left. They did primal therapy. They left me there. It was fabulous. I was so sick of all of them, and they were sick of me, and they left me a little money. I got drunk and primaled at the sheep. I sat in the hayloft and screamed at the sheep. And I had my friend Clarence, who was my only buddy. You know, I'm getting out of town because it's cold in Wisconsin. I am not doing another winter. I know that. 
And so I'm going to harvest this stuff and turn it into some cash. So I did that by horseback, and um, I ended up forgetting the 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 cash, you know, the the cash cow in hefty bags back at the farm. And I had driven 45 miles to a university town. And they said, where's the stuff? And I went, ah, forgot it. (laughs) So I turned around, and this is the decision. This is my brain. There was the lights of a carnival. There was the music of the calliope. There was a lot going on. I went, I always wanted to be a gypsy. I turned around, walked over there, found the owner of the show, went through some tequila with him. He asked me if I had a trailer hitch on my, on my car, and I did. I think that's why he hired me, so that I could hold my joint with the carnival, a shooting gallery. He said, you're hired. Be here tomorrow. I said, yeah. So I called my mother from Arkansas um, <laughs> that I had joined Matt Armstrong's show. She went, what? I mean, that's a call you want to get if you're a mom, that your child just joined the carnival. Um, <laughs> but... I loved it because I you just go into a town, you're two or three days, and you leave. And I just thought all about what's behind me until I get sober and go, what the heck? i got to make amends for all this stuff. How's that going to happen? But you just we just left town. I took what I wanted. I, I You got to steal. And, and, and it was it was really good because I had nobody on me. I had nobody on me. All I had to do was... You know, make some money and pay the owner so much every night, and I could keep the rest, and everybody stole. But I was drinking tequila, and when I drink tequila, I'm kind of mean sometimes. And little kids would, like, shoot down their three targets, and um, I don't want to give them a teddy bear. I just bought those teddy bears. That's my flash, not yours. And so I would just pop one up, and they would say, no, we shot three down. I said, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. There's two. Look. No, we, no. We're going to tell our dads. Go on. Who cares? So they would go get their dads, and their dads would come back, and then there would be a fight, and that happened twice. And we got closed down twice because in one of my boots I have mace, so a little bit of mace. The other boot usually had a pint, but that's the way I rolled. So you have to protect yourself. So I would stick the mace in the fight and start macing people, and then the police would get called, and then we got shut down. And Mr. Armstrong, I know he said, get that little Wisconsin farm girl. Get that little Wisconsin farm girl. And, um, yeah, they did in Bogalusa, Louisiana. <laughs> they came in at 7 a.m. and took what they – they had everything there. that was there for sales and possession. I kept saying, I'm not selling. But, you know, when you stand out against the wall with a sheet around you, with, you know, guns around, it's like, okay, um, you'll comply. And um, my new – boyfriend, that's where you find them, girls. They had a lot of potential at the carnival. Um, had a pet skunk named Crank, and he was defunct, but um, my dog went to jail, the skunk went to jail, he went to jail, I went to jail. The carnival left town never to be seen again. Bye! <laughs> and I was having DTs in this jail after about three or four days, and I didn't know what was happening because I thought, i got to get out of here. I've, this has never happened to me before. This is, this is, I, I'm, I'm afraid. And um, I just found a piece of glass and cut myself all over, little tiny cuts on my skin, just so I would have blood all over me. Uh, that was the, that's what my head told me to do. 
So they left me alone. And they did come in at night, and they did pick who they wanted, and they left me alone because I was crazy. I was the crazy one. And I don't know how long I was in there, maybe two weeks, and um, I met the guy making, he was in for murder or something, but if we reached really long above, above the toilet, there was a little spot, and he was making something, I guess they called it prono, and if I would hold my nose and drink it, it would make me feel better. But my dad had gotten word from my brother-in-law in New York because that was my one phone call. And my dad got on a plane, brought his checkbook, flew down to New Orleans, rented a car, looked at the map, drove across Lake Pontchartrain, found Bogalusa, found out where I was, hired a lawyer, hired a bail bondsman. And they came in that morning and they cuffed me and they threw me in the car and they drove me somewhere and they threw me in the room and there's my dad. And um, I didn't talk to him, and he didn't talk to me. I asked him about that day when I was 20 years sober. I didn't get to go home and rip off scabs. I had to be living amends for a long time. And that was a painful, painful day. That was a day I hope I never forget how I felt when I walked in and my dad was sitting there. And um, they took his money and they sent me back to jail. And finally, I got out, and I found the French Quarter of New Orleans, and that's where my drinking 24-7. And I met many of you down there, <laughs> and we took care of each other. I remember my um, my foot got, I broke a bone on the top of my foot. We used to wear a lot of platform shoes back in the day, and, and we'd be, you know, walking from work to bar to wherever, and... And um, I danced for Chris Owens. Uh, oh, my God. She was a crazy woman. She's still there. She's, like, all plasticed up. But um, she had she was very dark and Spanish-looking. And then we had to wear these wigs, these platinum blue wigs. And, you know, we had little swimsuits on. It wasn't naked dancing. Um, and you had to wear these platform shoes and these fishnet stockings. And we had to dance behind her because she was, you know, the star. And then we had a few solos. If she liked you, you got to have a solo. So I would come out and do my solo on this baby grand, but I would lean on the palm tree because I'm drinking cavasse with the trumpet player, right? So anybody's got the booze, I'll find it. And I would get stuck on the palm tree with my fishnets on the staples, you know. So I'm trying to get my staples out of my fishnets and my costume and I think it was the Alabama football team was there that night so I just like ripped these things off and I gave them a big dance and they thought I was great and I fell over in the in their laps and and so I went and asked for a raise and uh, she <laughs> she said you're gone so I, I became a bartender and I got fired from really nice places but we used to get a go kind of crawl between local joints and where we were working and I I fell and I saw that there was a little bone in the top of those little bones in the top of your foot. It was a little kind of made a little tint, you know, under my skin. So I had obviously snapped the bone. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So, you know, I went in the bar where we were the, you know, Bastille and I put my foot up in the bar and Billy the bartender looked at it and everybody comes over to look at it. There's probably a doctor there too, you know, in the, in the bunch tonight. And so we just duct taped it to my shoe. We just duct taped the bone down to my shoe, my platform, and I left it there for a while. And you know what? It, it, still to this day, I don't even know where the break was. It was perfect. <laughs> well, sometimes those bartenders duct tape, it'll work, you know? But 
So, you know, my mother had to go up to that Wisconsin farm and get, she had some antiques she had given me because she thought maybe this would work for her daughter. I mean, we tapped maple trees. We did oh, a lot of work. I was supposed to be a break. I had my gallbladder removed. The doctor said, look at you. You're 21. You shouldn't look like this. Do you abuse drugs or alcohol? And I said, I'm organic. I remember telling him, I'm organic. But looking back, he spotted something in me. I don't know alcoholism. There's none in my family. We have a town drunk. In Mount Vernon, Iowa, we had a town drunk. We didn't have alcoholism, not that I know of. Um, so my mother had to go all the way up there and take care of things, and the cat had been kicked by the horse, and the cat had to go to the vet. I'm not hurting anyone but me, Mom. Leave me alone. You know, and that, I'm sure, broke her heart a little, a um, little bit more. And um, so now I'm in New Orleans. They don't really know where I am. They don't know what's happened to me. Um, they show up at the door one day. The skunk, the skunk man had a snake now. Um, it's, you know, morning. I have my platinum blonde wig on and my makeup on. And, you know, I think I had a black eye. So, you know, that's how we rolled. And, you know, he and I sparred because I couldn't feel anything. I think I didn't know what love was. I had no idea. He broke his leg on a tugboat and... So he would come after me, hopping at me, and I'd say, come on. And <laughs> So my mom and dad see this, where I'm living, in this tar paper apartment above a biker bar. And I can't believe they're at the door. I can't believe it. And my brother and my sister were there, and I didn't know it until I was, until 1999. And I got sober in 75. So I didn't even know it, and they started telling a story about this guy, and I thought, how do you know? And they were there. You know, Chuck C. used to talk about, you know, we get a chance to rub out the record. We get a chance to rub out the record here. We get a chance to have a new life. And I had no idea these constant, I'm a blackout drinker. And Chuck used to say it rains on the just and the unjust. Everybody gets a shot. Well, I don't know what he means by that. It rains on the just and the unjust. I, I didn't know what he meant. But it, it's like... I have to go out in the world and be nice to somebody I don't even know. I have to go out in the world and be kind to somebody that needs my help. Johnny Harris talks about help God's kids, helping other God's kids. And that's the way I can make amends for the blackouts I was in. I don't know who I hurt. I don't know where I was. Sometimes I wake up, I'm in a different state. And um, So 1975 was, um, I'm on the run. I'm unemployable, even from... Lower Decatur Street, seedy, sorry, smelly bars. I got fired for having a bad attitude. My alcoholic friends didn't want to drink with me anymore. And um, so I'm on my way to Hawaii with somebody I met, and we're in Barney's Beanery in West Hollywood. I am 185 pounds of bloated, toxic. I've got spots on my face. Uh, I'm paranoid. I'm wearing this red dashiki and Panama hat, and I've got my backpack and my book be here now in it. And I'm I'm done. I'm, I don't care anymore. But well, I won't go to Hawaii. So this girl has this book at the bar, Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going, what is that? And she's really drunk. And the bartender takes away her keys, calls a taxi, and sends her off to A&A. And we give her a truck. Go for your crash car to A&A. 
And I guess she was having her court card signed. I didn't understand. She was passing it down, and people at the bar were signing her court card. So, but the, her name was Chris Running, and she died at 31 years old, a wet brain. But she was my first connection to you. And my friend, I never saw him again. I didn't get to Hawaii. I got on the back of a bike, and we went to Palm Springs to party, and the bike guys didn't want to hang with me. And I'm in a blackout. I don't know where I am. I'm unemployable. I have nothing. I don't remember. But I came to an apartment where they were really breaking me, breaking bones on me. And um, I became, um, I was a victim of violent crime, and I had a detective and all. I was like, but uh, I just, I am in a blackout. I come to, my jaw's being broken. Um, it's, it's, I quit fighting for my life. I quit fighting for my life. I made a decision. And when I came to, I was in the sand, face down, and I heard the car door slam. And what I did was, it said, I heard, I lifted my head up because I thought they were coming back. Because I heard a voice that, great fact, way down deep inside, said, get up, I want to live. What? I heard it. Get up, I want to live. And I came uh, to on a gurney. I guess somebody had found me by a pool or something, and I was laying on the gurney, and I had to write who I was because I had no idea. I had nothing. And um, so I was in the hospital for two weeks, and um, they were giving me morphine. I remember that. I don't think I had ever had morphine before. Um, It was like ringing that bell every two hours. And then they wouldn't give it to me anymore because they said something on my chart like addictive personality. Um, I remember seeing that. And this guy came all the way down because I had nowhere to go. And they had caught these guys, and it was going to be a court case. And he came all the way down to Palm Springs from West Los Angeles. And he said, I know you have nowhere to go. You can come stay with me. You can use my car to drive back and forth. And he was dating the girl Chris in the bar with the big book. So I'm living above a liquor store, <laughs> conveniently, with my wires on my face, holding it so it wouldn't, you know, they did a really beautiful job. I'm very, very lucky that I had a top guy that morning who didn't make scars on my face. He said I was so swollen, but he could tell my bone structure. And um, so he was able to put me back together pretty well. And um, so that morning... Um, he, he said to me, I'm drinking cheap wine through where the tooth had been kicked out, through the wires on the face, because he'd buy me wine, and there's no more, let's go. There's no more, I don't need you. There's no more, me and God had a big fight a long time ago. I don't need God. I don't need people. I just want my alcohol. And i got to keep moving and move fast, because I catch up with me too fast. You can change your name and move to a new town and look in the mirror, and there you are. And uh, so I, I was drinking cheap wine that morning, and he said, you have to leave. You're depressing me. <laughs> I think everything inside of me just kind of, there was no more air in me. I just like a balloon. And um, I looked down, and that girl, Chris Running, her name was there. And that's the one that he was dating, the girl in the bar. And I called her because she was always nice to me. And I couldn't talk. <laughs> First three months in AA, that was me. I couldn't talk. I had to learn to listen. 
And you would look at me and go, uh, you look new. And I'd think, well, how do I know? You know, it's... <laughs> You could smell me. I detoxed in the rooms. The 12-step house, the only one that was near me went, no, when I walked in. Okay. I was used to rejection. I didn't care. I didn't care. I slept on people's floors in Alcoholics Anonymous till I got a sponsor, and then I got a couch. Get a sponsor, your life gets better. But I called Chris, and she was drinking that day, so she couldn't 12-step me, so she gave me the number of somebody who was sober that day, and I called Suzanne, and Suzanne knew, everybody knew the liquor store I was living above because it was sold out the back after hours. It was an alcoholic stream. So she knew where I was. She sent her two beautiful California babies over to get me. She told me where to sit. She said, put your drink down, put your joint down, too. And I thought, how'd she know I'm working both here? She read my mail, and I went and sat where she told me to sit with my backpack, <coughs> my bruised, broken face, my bruised, broken soul, my broken shoes, my broken spirit, my broken life. And uh, they pulled up, and I went, no. But I was too tired to fight. I was, I was out of friendly direction. There was nothing. There was nothing but get in the car with these girls. So I did, and we would go to this church, and I went, oh, God, here we go. I can't do this. I'm going to leave. I don't say, I don't, I don't commit. You start saying eternity or forever, I'm gone. I don't commit. So we're sitting in this meeting. I'm thinking that the man talking is the priest or whatever. He's not the priest, but he's a minister. And he was perfect for me that night because I don't know where I am, really. But he said he always waited for the spaceship to land and say, you can come home now, Bill. And I went, spaceship people. I looked around at all of you. I lifted my chin up and looked at all of you, and you looked like spaceship people, and I was happy. (laughs) And that was my hook. That was my hook. I think we all have a hook in us for somebody that maybe they're just going to hear it from you. Maybe they're walking. I have a girl who was walking out of AA fifth time, not ever coming back, and she didn't know who said it because she only looked at people's shoes. But she heard him say to the guy that he was talking to, don't leave five minutes before the miracle, and it pierced her. Who knew? He didn't know. She didn't know. Right place, right time, openness, whatever it is. Moment of grace. Came in, sat down, she's kept 34 years. Just gave her a cake. So there's a hook in us that only is meant for one person, but yet we have the opportunity and the gift and the responsibility to help as many alcoholics that need help, that want help, that are in here, that need to be here. It's just by our example. But I think each of us have a hook for that one person, whatever it is. And you may not know when they say it or if they'll see it. Or maybe they'll see you do something and they'll go, oh, I can stay another day. So, anyway... I wanted you to know my story because I know in my workshops I'm going to go through a lot of sober experience. And that's what came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was an ember of life, and all it would have taken was just somebody to put their hand over that ember, and I would be extinguished. There was not much left. But you said things like, um, some man said to me, you look tired, kid. I thought, how's he know? And he said, take your pack off and stay with us 30 days. 
And he walked away, but he came back almost immediately. He said, no, you look really tired. Why don't you stay with us? I don't know. He invited me for more days. I don't know if it was 60 or 90 or what. But I thought, well, that was nice. He invited me to stay longer. Things like that struck me. Um, like I said, I couldn't talk. I couldn't eat. I couldn't. So they gave me a commitment of washing cups at this meeting. And I standing there in this big old church sink that is just, you know, one of those big old sinks that, and we smoked, prayed like crazy back then. So we had those yellow and gold and red and green ashtrays and those <laughs> aluminum things. And somebody would just knock the butts out of it and then they would throw them in my soapy water with the cups. And I had cups and ashes and ashtrays all, and I didn't know what to, I stood, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to do this commitment. And there was a lady in our group, her name was Pat, and she used to be in the CIA. She really was. And I remember she walked behind me. You could always feel her coming, you know. And she stuck her mouth in my ear and she said, wash. Okay, wash. It was that simple. So I washed. It didn't matter. I just washed. That lady was going to have a couple of effects on me in her lifetime here at pivotal points in my life. And I did end up at my sponsor's couch, and she did make me say a prayer on my knees every night. If you're staying here, you got to get on your knees, and you got to say this prayer, and she had to write it down for me. Thank you for all you've given me. Thank you for all you've taken away from me. Thank you for all you've left me. And then I would slide back in the borrowed sleeping bag I had, and I read three pages of the big book a night, remembered nothing, remembered nothing. I paid my book off. It took me a year but I paid it off. And we have something called a watch. We watch people turn one. We, like, take them to the coffee shop. It's midnight. If we get them to midnight, they'll be one. And, you know, you don't go to the bathroom alone. If you go, so go with them. You know, they don't smoke. Go smoke with them. You know, we just, like, make sure you're going to make it to one. So the guy who sold me my big book, he was a Hollywood writer. He was a great guy, Maurice Zolito. He was funny, funny, smart man. And he said, I knew you'd make it because you paid me back for that big book. You're the only newcomer that paid me back for that big book, one quarter at a time. Because I used to keep a little notebook, what I owed you, because you guys were nice to me. I was going to pay you back because I'm leaving. I always leave. I don't stay. I don't commit. But I was so broken and had nowhere to go that I just stayed here. Um, I wasn't a rocket to stardom. I I was a, a newcomer. You know, I'm the one that had eight more days than the lady who walked in after me, and she got everybody's attention because she was clean and could talk, and, you know, and the beautiful part about that, I'll talk a little bit about Pat, but, you know, you got to have someone you're ahead of, you know, because if you go out, then you're behind them. You know, I resented the crap out of her. She took all the old-timers' love away from me and took it, you know, and I got the second string of people working with me. And, <laughs> and you know, Pat and I, you know, we call each other every August just to wish each other a happy birthday. And, we, you know, we, we talk about the quantity or quality, you know, those eight days, but it doesn't matter. Uh, we're both still here. And I got to go home and make amends, and I did my fourth and fifth step with my sponsor. And oh my goodness, it was an all night long thing. I couldn't, I couldn't write that fourth step. I would panic. I would have panic attacks. I would sweat. I was like, she, she'd say, "Call me now," and then call me in an hour. And I call her, and how's it going? Oh yeah, it's going good. You know, I, and I had to go wait tables. They wouldn't let me bartend, of course. 
and I didn't have a had a bad attitude serving food. Just I'm a bartender, you know. And people would say, "How are you?" And I tell them. I mean, strangers, I would tell them my sad, sorry story. And the Culver City Clubhouse, who went to the Friday nights, I worked at a place called Hobo Joe's. It was right by the Culver City Clubhouse, and they would come over after the meeting, and they'd feel really good, right? And they sit. Let's go sit in that little girl from the Pacific Grouper Station. And then they would be brought down so much by me because I would just tell them my tale of woe that they just never wanted to sit in my station again. And somebody called the Queen Alanon, Sally Carpenter, who is married to a guy named Keith Carpenter. And they called Sally and they said, that girl's not going to make it. She's not going to make it. you got to tell her she's just got to fake it because she's, like, not making any money. She's going to get fired soon. And she's just a downer. So Sally comes up to me one night. I've got my uniform on. I've got to go work a split shift. And she goes like this. <laughs> what are you doing? She said, I want you to go out tonight and just smile. When they ask you how you are, you say, I'm fine, thank you. May I take your order? Give them hot food. Don't tell them how you are. You bring people down. I, I'm like, I thought we are supposed to be honest in all our fears. She said, they don't care. <laughs> I thought, I'll go out and prove her wrong. So I went out, and I did it exactly like she said. I felt like the biggest phony. And when I had my little dinner at halftime, I made twice as much money already. I thought, okay, I get it. And I, I waited tables for two and a half years before I got a better job. And and I, and I you know, my first Christmas, um, this is my second Christmas, because my first Christmas I was barely coherent. It was my second Christmas. I was working at a hotel near the airport, and we had gone to a, an alcathon. We go to an alcathon. I think 2 a.m. was our slot or something. So we all go out on Christmas Eve, and we do our alcathon, and, and then everybody goes off to have their Christmas with their families, and I get to go to work. And so I'm putting this uniform on, and I show up at work. And and uh, then my boss says, there's some people that want in the back room that want you to wait on. I'm like, oh, maybe it's that nice couple from Ohio. They come around a lot. Um, and I went and opened the room, and it was about 12 people from the Alcathon that I had gone with in the group that stayed to have Christmas morning breakfast with me. And they gave me a Bob Dylan album <laughs> and some money, and, and we got to have a really good morning. And that, that meant a lot to me. That meant a lot to me that somebody took the time to help this uh, newcomer who really didn't have much of a family going. And, and, and life went on, and my amends were made to my dad and my mom. I'll talk about amends tomorrow. Um, the thing with my dad, it took a long time. Um, I'm, really, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity. You get one mom and you get one dad, and I'm glad I had the opportunity. And I was, I was scared to death to do a lot of the amends in my life. But I, uh, I'm glad I did while they were here. I'm really glad I did. Um, my second husband, because you get to have two in AA, not really, I'm teasing. Um, um, you know, he didn't get a chance to make amends to his mom, and he breathed cheap vodka on her as she was dying from bone cancer. And this was before I met him, but the story touches me so much. Um, and we were dating, and my son got kicked out of the Lutheran kindergarten. He had a rap sheet, so he got <laughs> sent to, um, I sent him to the, the nuns, and because I was sponsoring the principal of the school who was the head nun. Scared me all the time, but I still sponsor her. She's going to celebrate 60 years, and I get to participate in her mass. 
six years of being a nun, and I get to stand up there and participate in her mass. So I sent my son to her, and every year they have a school carnival, and guess who had her uh, carnival? That's <laughs> on my list. So, but my husband was helping by carrying the money uh, from one part of the whole church lot to the other part of the school so they could lock it up. And there was a lot of money that was about this carnival. It was a big carnival. And um, sometimes that area could have been a little iffy in L.A. So they wanted Casey to, you know, he was dispensable, I guess. You take the money over to the rectory so they put it in the safe and... And, you know, he had done the amends to his mother. He had gone, as Clint Hodges taught him, how to go to the grave and clean the grave and, and clip the, the grass and, and write a letter and talk to your mom. And then the next time you come, you clip the grass and you wash the grave and you, you keep your mom up to date on what's happening. And so he had been doing that with his mother. And his mother was, um, she almost became a nun. She was a, a Catholic woman. And... When he was walking across all of that with all this money going to where it was going to be safe through all the carnival people, um, he stopped and had this moment that his mother knew he was sober. And, and it was just a moment of grace that he knew his mother knew he was sober and they was leading a good life. Now, you never know when that stuff's going to happen. You never know when you're going to have a spiritual experience, a little one, a big one, an awakening, You'll be there for somebody else. You'll watch them light up. It's phenomenal what we get here. We get a whole new life. And if I, for the rest of my years and moments, thank you, thank you. If the rest of my years and my moments on this planet, I continue to be one of those people that Chuck talks about, just go out there and help other God's kids get things done right on. Yeah, my sponsor used to say, go do something nice for someone without getting found out. And then I would tell her, and she'd say, okay, now you got to go do something else. <laughs> I've had three sponsors. Um, I've had Janet for five years, crazier than a loon, but I didn't know it. She was very intimidating, scared me. Um, it was good. I needed it. I had Ginny, who changed my father with my financial amends, changed my relationship with my father because of financial amends. Change. I had no idea the changes were going to happen. But she believed that we could have one more thing. And she told me to just do one more thing, and I did. I'll talk about that in amends tomorrow, too. And, and my, my, um, it just, when my life fell apart and my first husband had the affair with the newcomer in the room and nobody got custody, oh my God. And Jenny got off a plane, I picked her up with my new baby in a stroller. And my husband became a punk rocker, sober. It was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And I was secretary of our big group, so I'm wearing, like, you know, the nice suits. And he's, like, punking out with his stuff. And he's like, you know. And it was weird. And then, you know, then he got the newcomer, and nobody got custody of the meetings. And, oh, it was crazy. And I went and picked up Jenny at the airport. was in Paris doing a play. And she got off the plane. Instead of she, she was supposed to have 21 years. She had 21 days. It broke my heart. And I was driving home, and I went by Clancy's house. And, you know, I'm even a member of that group from the beginning. I'm part of it all. I know what it's about. I know what we're all supposed to do. We're very activists. We're activists. And, you know, Chuck said you can't think your way into good living. You have to act your way into good living and act your way into good thinking. It all kinds of comes around from the actions I take. 
I can lay in bed and have wonderful thoughts, but if I don't do anything, nothing changes. Nothing changes if nothing changes. And um, so I stopped and knocked on the door, and he said he was sorry he heard about Jenny. I start crying. I got my baby there. I'm sitting by the fireplace crying, and he's, like, sitting in his chair looking at me like, okay, is she going to stop? Because we were talking about this the other day. I went and brought him a vanilla milkshake cause, um, on my 44th birthday because he's, you know, he doesn't get out much anymore. He's 92. He's winding down. And... Um, we're here to help him now. We're here to make him laugh and be comfortable and tell him stories. And so we sat there on my 44th birthday, talked about when I sat by that fireplace and cried my eyes out. And he just thought, I said, I remember because I said, will you sponsor me? I don't know if I like you and I don't know if you like me. And he said, do you remember you said, we'll try? That's what he said. He didn't say yes or no. He said, we'll try. And so that's what we've been trying for all these years. And uh, he's been louder than my head at big moments in my life where I acted right because I had a positive thought put in there to do. I didn't come up with it myself. If you don't know your sponsor's phone number and you speed dial it in your phone, memorize it. It will save your life one day if you lose that phone. You know, sit on your phone and write that number down and learn it. Don't. I dial it. It's a good. I mean, I there's been many times I've been at a pay phone. If you don't know what that is, kids, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I'm so glad, grateful I know phone numbers in my brain because it saved my life from my sponsor. But, yeah, so he's been my sponsor for 34, 35 years, and he's uh, watched me grow up. He's watched me go through the death of my father and the death of my mother and the death of my sweetheart, Casey. And um, he made me walk with dignity and grace through things because I had to be an example to others. It was a higher purpose than just the pain I was going through. The example was the higher purpose, and it made a difference in my life and many lives. So we don't know what it's all about much of the time. I just get up and I do what I'm supposed to do. I have a dog and I have a cat and um, I, you know, cats keep you humble and dogs, like, like when I go sit with my God, God goes, yeah, you're here. I'm so happy. God just is like, you know, we're the prodigal, like the prodigal son. You just, he's just come sit with me. I'm so glad. Here you are. And that's when I open my door after I'm gone for a while and my dog is, yay. You're home. You know, dogs fell backwards, right? Whatever. But, um, you know, that's what my God is like when I go sit with my God in the morning. Is yay. And um, I have that morning time with my dog and my cat and my God. And uh, then I feed them. They stay there until, well, are you done yet? We're hungry. You know? <laughs> always have to have accountability. I always have to have accountability. So I'm... Um, I'm really grateful to be here. I have so many fun things to talk about tomorrow. I'm so excited. Um, I think to, emotional sobriety is going to be my first workshop. I've been trying to. Um, I've got three, but I'm going to start with emotional sobriety. So I think it's a good way to start your day. So we'll do that tomorrow morning. And I'm, I'm in Blue Licks, Kentucky. <laughs> I, I'm digging it. You guys are fun. I can't wait to get to know you more. And now you know all about me or a little bit about me. We all have a story. We all have a story. And that's the beautiful part. Sandy used to talk about storytelling. 
You know, we have to keep it alive and keep it going because that's what I start to hear. I start to hear me and you. I know I'm not alone. I was looking and seeking connection my whole life, and I've connected here with you, and I get to take it out in a world I don't understand and come back in here and sit with you where it makes sense. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Wow.